Uh, Luke chapter 10. Um, we're going to start in verse 25. It says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him. Him, of course, is Jesus. Saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Or literally, how do you read? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said, Jesus said to him, You have answered rightly, Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he sent him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the next day when he departed, he took two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And the lawyer answered, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. I love this parable. I could read this parable every day. And the more I read it and the more I meditate and study it, the the more truths are are packed into this, this wonderful uh, parable of, this, of the what we call the Good Samaritan, um, but we don't have time to really pull it all out today. But I do want to make uh, a few observations, and and it just so happens that uh, it it coincides with Orphan Sunday. Obviously, the application is very apparent, I assume. Um, but the Lord's actually been laying this passage on my heart for weeks now. And I just didn't know when he wanted me to share it, but I think today he wanted me to share on this. Um, so first of all, the question, then we'll look at Jesus' answer. What was the question? The question being asked was in verse 25. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So the lawyer wants to know how to be saved. Or shall we say, how to go to heaven? That's what we might say. What 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 do I do? And it's it's important to realize that the way he asked the question, he's assuming something very important. You know what he's assuming? Say it. Yeah, he's assuming that eternal life is gained by something you do. That's his operating assumption. He says, teacher, what do I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? So his operating assumption is what we call works. Works righteousness. That he must do something to receive eternal life. And this is important because it shows the mindset not just of this lawyer, but of the entire uh, pharisaical system. Really, many of the Jewish people in Jesus' day had this assumption. And Jesus answers them according to their assumptions. Because if you read this parable by itself, you could walk away thinking, oh, 
Well, then, I guess if I do this, I'll get eternal life. But that's really not what the story is about. But he, the, the, the lawyer is assuming that eternal life is not a gift. It, it's it's a rather a reward that someone has to earn by doing something. So Jesus says, okay, how do you read the law? So he's put, he, he says, he, he puts it back on him. And he says, how do you read? Or what do you read? And so the lawyer answers and he quotes um, the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And as we know, Jesus taught that these two commandments summarize all of the commandments of God. Now, God gave us ten commandments, right? And then in the Old Testament, there are various laws, which were really just applications of those principles, really ten principles. And the Jews had worked it into 613 laws. That's why they would ask them questions like, uh, which one's really important? <laughs> I mean, you're not gonna, you're not gonna cover them all. You're not gonna do them all. And so, um, the lawyer answered correctly, right? He knew the right answer. Then why did he ask Jesus the question? On the face of it, you would think, well, this guy's a sincere guy who's just wants to, I mean, he's inquiring because he's a genuine seeker, you know. But that's not what the text says. Because when you look at the text, it says in verse 25, that behold, a certain lawyer stood up and what, what did he do? He tested him. So there was more going on here than this guy's just a seeker wanting to know the truth. There's more going on with him. And we see that not only by the fact that he was really testing Jesus, but after he gives the right answer, Jesus says in verse 28, Awesome, dude. That's the Greek. <laughs> he says, right answer. Now, the, the, I want you to look at this. Okay, This way, when you read your Bible, you have to have a couple Starbucks first. So you're really awake. You notice how good Sterling did on the drums because he had a Starbucks in his hand when he walked in, right? You have to be really awake. There's no word in the Bible that's there by chance. Did you know that? So Jesus says to him in verse 28, look at his answer. You've answered rightly. But he didn't stop there. And this is really important. You answered rightly. But now do it. Right? You answer really? Okay. Good answer. Do it. Then you will have life. If you're going to operate on the assumption that you have to earn eternal life, you know the great commandment, you know the second commandment, you've got the right answer, it's all in your head, do it and you'll get eternal life. Well, when Jesus said that, I believe that man was convicted. And why do I say that? Because the very next verse says, and he, wanting to justify himself, said, who is my neighbor? He would not have responded that way unless he had been convicted of the fact that in even though he answered rightly, he knew he wasn't keeping the commandment. He knew it. So what did he do? 
He wanted to figure out a loophole. So he says, well, who's my neighbor? So Jesus now answers who his neighbor is. And he tells the story of what we call the parable of the Good Samaritan. And there's several characters in this parable. So let's look at Jesus' answer and look at, look at, look at the, uh, the characters. There's three main characters. We have the priest, we have the Levite, and we have the Samaritan, called the Good Samaritan, right? So first of all, the priest. The priest comes by, he sees the man lying on the road, beaten, naked, um, ready to die, almost dead. Um, and he walks, it says, walks on the other side. He walks away. He doesn't help. He, he doesn't deal with him. And, and the, the, the priest typifies the legalist. Okay? The legalist. Now, by the way, this story is, is, would have been very, very real to Jesus' listeners because there actually was a road that went from Jerusalem to Jericho. And this road was actually known as the Bloody Way. And the reason was because it was such a dangerous road to travel on. And there were so many thieves and robbers that people got murdered on this road all the time. And it was also, we should note, the road that the priests used when they would go to Jerusalem to fulfill their course. And so in Jericho, Jericho was a city inhabited by 12,000 priests. And they would, they would go back and forth from Jericho to Jerusalem. So when Jesus talks about the priest and the Levite being on this road, this happened all the time. So the priest comes down the bloody way, this dangerous road, and he sees a man lying there. And what is his response? His response is to turn a blind eye and walk the other way, right? And the, the, the priest in this parable, really represents what I call the legalist. The legalist is the person that loves principles more than they love people. Right? He loves law more than he really loves kindness. This was the problem with the the Jewish system, but it was the problem with any legalistic religion. Jesus says this, hold your place on Luke and look at Matthew 23, if you will. Matthew 23, he's addressing the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, the priests, if you will. And he says in verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. The, the Pharisees were, were known for their particularity, their attention to details. This is why Jesus, remember Jesus says, you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. The straining of a gnat was something that they literally did. They didn't want a gnat to fall into their drink, or otherwise if they drank it and there was a gnat in there, they would be ceremonially unclean. So they would strain the drink just to make sure that they were clean, right? Just to be clean. And this, this legalistic approach is a, is what we could call a negative righteousness. 
A negative righteousness. What I mean, it, it defines holiness or even goodness, not by what we do, but what, but what we don't do. Well, I don't do that, and I don't do that, and I don't do that, and I don't do that, so I'm a good person. This is, this is the, the legalist approach to morality. It's a, it's a negation, but it is not an affirmation of goodness. It's simply a negation of evil. And so, this is why Paul said in, in Philippians 3, when he's recounting his old days as a priest, he says, he says, regarding the law, I was blameless. And that was the goal, to be blameless. Not to violate. Not to do the bad things. And that's all good, right? Isn't that good? Don't do the bad things, right? But that's not gospel, that's law. Law says don't do this. The gospel is do this. The gospel is an affirmation of holiness, an affirmation of goodness, an affirmation of love, an affirmation of mercy, an affirmation of compassion. So the legalist wants to separate himself from sin, and thus he avoids sinners. That's what legalists do. Look at uh, the book of Luke in chapter 7. It says in verse 36, it says, Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house, and he sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city was a sinner. A sinner. You believe that? A sinner. There was a sinner there. Now, do you think that Luke was surprised that there were any sinners around? Luke's writing this. You think Luke was surprised? Why do you think Luke said there was a sinner? Because he's giving us a little glimpse into the mindset of the Pharisees. Okay, This is how they see things. You have the good people and you have the bad people. And the good people avoid the bad people. Life's simple that way, isn't it? So there was a sinner there. In fact, everybody there was a sinner except Jesus. <laughs> so there's a sinner, and when she and when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. And now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself. Okay, this is go- now, now we're getting Luke's tongue goes what's going on in this guy's mind. This man, meaning Jesus, this man, looking down his long, holy nose, if he were a prophet, he would know what manner of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. Implication, I'm not. I'm not one of those. And Jesus said, Simon, you're such an idiot. I have something to say to you. So he said, say it, teacher. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors, and one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to pay, 
He freely forgave them both. Now, Jesus is bringing home the fact that she's not the only sinner in the room. Right? Guess what, Simon? You're a sinner too. He freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered and said, I suppose the one he forgives more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Now, had he, had he seen the woman? But had he really seen the woman? No. He saw the woman. He judged her a sinner. And thus, he didn't really see the woman. He missed the whole drama that was going on there. As she was weeping and repenting and thanking Jesus for being a gracious Savior, he didn't see it because he was too self-righteous. Do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she's washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. The self-righteous legalist doesn't think they need forgiveness. And so guess what? The the self-righteous legalist doesn't love Jesus. But when you realize you're a sinner... Then you love Jesus because you realize the grace that he's bestowed upon you. The wonderful forgiveness that he has given you. And how unworthy you are for that forgiveness. Yet he gives it to you anyway because that's who Jesus is. So, Simon could have said, well, you know, I didn't do anything wrong. I invited you over anyway. But notice Jesus goes through a list of things that she did that he didn't do. Well, it wasn't wrong what he did. He didn't do anything wrong by not anointing Jesus, by not kissing Jesus, by not washing Jesus. He didn't do anything wrong. He just didn't do anything right. He didn't show any affirmation, any love for Jesus, you see. That's the, that's the legalist mindset. The legalist mindset is defining my holiness, my relationship with God by what I don't do. That's not gospel. That's law. Let's go back to our parable. The second individual in the parable is the Levite. The Levite comes along in verse 32 and says, Likewise, the Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and he looked and passed by on the other side. Now, so the Pharisee walks along. Let me make sure I don't have a rip on my pants. Okay, we're good. Okay, all right. So, you had to be here last week. You missed it. Okay. Get the podcast. Okay, so, um, where was I? Was it? Oh, yeah. So, the Pharisee comes along and it says that he just came along and he saw the man. And he just passed by on the other side. Now, some commentators say that this, this Greek word here for pass by could literally mean he walked over him. Yeah, that's even worse, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Now, so, but the Levite, it says, came and saw. So, 
it sounds like the Pharisee's walking along and he sees the guy and he just kind of, hmm. Praise Jehovah. But then when the, when the, the Levite came by, he actually, you know, stopped. Hmm, doesn't look good. Praise Jehovah. Yeah. Off to, off to the temple, right? And for years I read this and I, and I thought, well, at least he went and looked. You know, like, like I was thinking, okay, who's worse? The priest or the Levite? You know what I mean? And I always thought the priest was worse because they didn't even stop and look. But as I was studying this text, most commentators say the Levite's worse. Because by coming over and looking, he had more information. You know what I'm saying? It was closer. It was right. I mean, at least the priest could have acted, you know, maybe like he didn't really. Maybe the guy's taking a nap. You know what I mean? But the Levite knew. He walked up and he knew. He saw the guy he, right there. You know, beaten, bloody, naked, ready to die. And then he walked away. So they say the Levite's worse. I'll let you decide what you think. But this is not a choice between a good guy and a bad guy. They're both not doing their duty, right? They're both messing up by walking by. So the Levite, whereas the priest speaks primarily of of legalism, the Levite speaks of what we call tribalism. Tribalism. You know what tribalism is? Tribalism is loving one's own because they're your own. That's tribalism. Now, it might be your own family. might be your own church. But there's a circle that you care about, and outside that circle is the alien. You hearing me? And the tribalist likes or loves, not even sure love is really the best part, but Jesus uses it, loves those in the tribe. But if you're outside the tribe, no love for you. And what we, we need to understand is that at, at the Jesus' time, the Jews believed that God sanctioned hatred. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, You've heard it said of old, or by the, by the elders, the ancients, you shall love your neighbor. But then he adds this phrase, but hate your enemy. Why did he add that? Because they added that to the law. And so, according to the Pharisees, they'd say, yeah, you're supposed to love your neighbor. But the problem is, the Gentile isn't your neighbor. You're supposed to love your neighbors. Oh, but the Samaritans aren't your neighbor. So, while they could affirm love for one's neighbor, they drew the circle very tightly and... Outside of that circle, love need not be extended. Are you hearing me? I love the tribe, but outside the tribe, you're an alien, and I have I have no responsibility toward you because you're not in my tribe. Look at Luke six, since we're in Luke. Jesus addresses this problem. 
where he says this, where he tells us to love our enemies. Now, look, let's all be honest. Can we be honest for a moment? If so, say raise your hand and say you want me to be honest. Okay. We have a problem loving our friends. Am I not speaking the truth? Okay. Well, that tells me we're not even close to this. Jesus said to love your enemies. So the people you'd put outside the circle, you're supposed to love. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. From him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. Now, I just got to say this. Jesus wasn't a politician. Do you know that? Politicians say all kinds of things they don't mean. They say them because that's what the crowd wants to hear. Jesus said this. And you know what? He actually meant it. And I read this scripture to a woman one time who was angry at somebody and she needed to forgive them. And she spit at the other pastor in the room. Spit in his face. This was a saved person. A Jesus follower. And I said, excuse me, but Jesus expects you to do what he says. Well, that just made her all the more mad. I mean, we forget this. We forget that when Jesus says something, it's not like, hey, uh, here's some advice if you want to listen to it. Cool, whatever. I'm a chill kind of Jesus, you know. And so, I mean, this is so radical. You talk, We sang this song, you know, a revolution somehow. Well, this is a, this is a start of revolution. This is what started the revolution. This is what caused the church to grow. And when the early church was founded and the pagans were hauling Christians into the arena and literally, literally boiling them in pots of oil or setting them on fire or throwing to them, them to the lions, you know what? The Christians wouldn't retaliate. And people are like, what is going on? This must be supernatural. And it is, because you know what? We can't love our enemies. Because we're not even good at loving our friends. This is, this is so contrary to human nature. I mean, do you understand what Jesus is saying? Jesus is, is, by calling us to this, Jesus is really calling us to a supernatural life that only he can give us. Because you know what? The real Christian life, not the watered-down American evangelical white version, but the real Christian life is a supernatural life. And only Jesus can live it. No amens on this? We need to bring the coffee pot in and wake you guys up? Or what? I mean, do you understand we try to be good in our power, and then we, we, what we do is we, we reduce the teaching of Jesus down to something manageable by us. It's not manageable. It's supernatural. No one can do this unless God is working miracles in their heart. 
It's against nature. It's against your human nature. And Jesus says as much right here in verse 31 of Luke 6. After he says we're to love people that we naturally aren't going to love, people that are not treating us right, he says, and just as you want men to do to you, do also to them likewise. But notice this, verse 32. But if you love those who love you, this is the tribe, okay? If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. But if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive much back. You see what Jesus is saying? If we love those that are nice to us, if we love those that love us, we are no better, no different than sinners. There's nothing unique about that. And I know some of us are walking around thinking, I'm a really spiritual Christian because I love my kids. What? (laughs) Pagans do that. And you have your circle of friends and you love your friends and maybe you'll make some sacrifices for your friends and you, I'm such a, I can't pet on my back. Will somebody come up and pet me? No, I'm just kidding. Even sinners do that. Loving the tribe is nature. Loving the alien is supernature. One of the most disturbing illustrations of tribalism I can share with you, and I'll be done in a moment, was uh, a number of years ago, and I think I shared this with you before, but it's, it's, when, I, when, when I heard this story, I, I was speechless. A gentleman who now lives in the United States is from Rwanda, and if you know anything about the history of Rwanda, there was a, a, a tremendous massacre in Rwanda. And in the space of three months, it's estimated that as many as a million people were either killed or maimed. Now, can you imagine? We're talking about a small country. Can you imagine just the bloodshed everywhere? And it was tribal warfare. Tribes were killing members of other tribes. You were outside the tribe. You deserved to be maimed or killed. And this gentleman that I talked to, that I interviewed on Encounter, he, he said um, he saw his family, his entire family, killed by a different tribe. Now, you want to talk about forgiveness? You want to start thinking about the people you need to forgive right now before you decide it's not possible? He saw his entire family murdered. So he comes to the U.S., And while he was here, the Lord began to deal with him and said, you need to forgive those people that killed your family. And God began to really deal with his heart. And eventually, he had an opportunity to forgive some of those people face to face. And he then became an agent of reconciliation in his country, bringing tribes and different people groups together to begin to bring healing through the gospel to that country. 
But the amazing part of the story wasn't that. Because I actually believe God can do that. I've forgiven people. I had to forgive my parents. I had to forgive people. I mean, and it's not easy, but God can do it. Amen? Amen. But the amazing part of the story is that when he's telling me about this tribal warfare, he said, he said, what you have to understand, David, is that the people in the tribes were professing Christians. It wasn't the unbelieving tribe against the believing tribe even. It was there were Christians in both tribes who were killing each other, maiming each other. And isn't that the devil? Is that not dark? But that's, isn't that not what we see all over? Maybe not physical, but spiritual, relational, Christian against Christian. I see a lot of it. A lot of unforgiveness, a lot of anger, a lot of hatred in the church. Some of it for other Christians. Unfortunately. The the call of the Christian is to be more than a legalist. Amen? It's to be more than a tribalist. It's to be a genuine Christian. And what does a genuine Christian look like? Well, Jesus tells us right here in Luke. He says, using the Samaritan as an example, he says, But a certain Samaritan, in verse 33 of chapter 10, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he saw that he was moved, but that's still not enough, because you can see, and you can even be moved. You can watch a video like that and cry. You're moved. But then he went to him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. And on the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. In other words, he took the trouble. He took the pain. He, he acted on what he saw. He acted on what he felt, even though there was a cost involved. And that's just a beautiful picture of of love, isn't it? Because that's all that mercy is. Mercy is simply an expression of love for those that are in need. And that's what we're called to. We're not called to be law keepers. Be able to check it off. Oh, I didn't do this and I didn't do this. We're We're not called just to love our families or just to even love our friends or just to even love our church. There's a big world out there. It's really big. Watch the news sometime. And everywhere you look, you're going to see suffering of some kind. We see it overseas. We see it with orphans. We see it with children starving. We see it with uh, ISIS. We see it, I mean, it's everywhere. You don't have to, I mean, it's like, to not see it, you have to literally live like this, right? I mean, you have to avoid seeing it. We see it with the, the, the women that come into Thrive who are pregnant and don't know what to do because they have no support and everybody in their life is saying, kill the baby. 
We see it in the, the struggle in Ferguson. I mean, it's everywhere. And it's not, it's not something we even have to seek out. You know what I'm saying? We live, we live in the, the digital age. It's brought to us. And so what do we do? Do we walk by? Or do we say, God, what do you want me to do? Now, look, if you really pay attention to what's going on in the world, there's so many things. I mean, it's overwhelming. And the danger is you get so overwhelmed, and so what happens? Paralysis. Like, I can't can't deal with this. I'm going to turn the football game back on. Nothing against football. I'm going to watch some today. <clears throat> but the point is, is that this is this is a God thing. This is where you, you know, you have to say, you know, as as you were exhorted earlier by Sandy, you know, pray. Lord, do you want me to go down to the Children of the Promise home and, and work for a couple weeks? Do you want me to just give and donate? Do you want me to adopt? Do you want me to be involved in the pro-life movement? Do you want me to, what, you know... What do you want me to do? Because God has something for you to do. All we have to do is ask. If we just ask him, he'll tell us. That's all we have to do is ask. But the one option that's not an option is to not care. That's not an option. We have to care. And then we have to find the place that God is calling us to express that compassion in a way that brings healing and hope to people. Um, J.C. Ryle, great. If you've never read any of his commentaries, J.C. Ryle, you should... Awesome. He says this on this passage. He says, I'm going to close with this. He says... How few Christians seem to remember that such a parable was ever written. What an enormous amount of stinginess and meanness and ill nature and suspicion there is to be seen in the church. And that even among people who repeat the creed and go to the Lord's table, which we're going to do in a moment. How seldom we see a man who is really kind and feeling and generous and liberal and good-natured except to himself and his children. Yet the Lord Jesus spoke the parable of the Good Samaritan, and he meant it to be remembered. What are we ourselves, he says? Let us not forget to put that question to our hearts. What are we doing? Each in our own station, to prove that this mighty parable is one of the rules of our daily life. What are we doing for the heathen at home or abroad, or today we would say the unsaved. What are we doing to help those who are troubled in mind, body, or estate? There are many such in this world. There are always some near our own doors. What are we doing for them? It's a good question, isn't it? It's a convicting question. But it's a question we need to ask. I'm going to close with a story that I've shared with you before, I believe. It's also a story about a man who was walking down a road, just like the priest and the Levite. This man is walking down the road, and he he sees a man lying in a pit. 
There's a man lying in a pit, can't get out, fell way down a pit. And so a Christian scientist came along and said, you only think you're in the pit. (laughs) And of course, the Pharisee came along and said, only bad people fall into the pit. A mathematician came along and calculated the size of the pit. A news reporter wanted an exclusive on what it's like to live in a pit. (laughs) A fundamentalist said, you deserve that pit. A charismatic said, just confess you're not in the pit. You didn't get that? The Baptist said, they should put a baptismal in that pit. And the Presbyterian said, you were predestined for that pit. But the best of all is the IRS man walked up and said, are you paying taxes on that pit? But of course, then Jesus came up and he put his hand in the pit and he pulled the man out. You know, opinions are like armpits. Everybody has them and they usually stink. The world doesn't need our advice. The world needs the hand of Jesus reaching down into their pit. Will you be Jesus? Will you be Jesus to an orphan? Will you be Jesus to the troubled community of Ferguson? Will you be, will you be Jesus to the, the woman who is having a crisis pregnancy? The world needs Jesus. Amen? Before we take the, the bread, you know, um, what we're really celebrating here is God's display of compassion for us. The, the broken body, symbolized by the bread, the shed blood, symbolized by the wine. What is that? For God so loved the world. Even when we were sinners, God demonstrated his love for us. When we were outside the tribe, when we were lawbreakers, when we were enemies, which means to be outside the tribe, God showed us his love through the death of Jesus. And if you are a true believer in that love, if you've received that love in your heart, then you're invited to the table to celebrate that and to renew your commitment to live that love out in your life. To be an expression of Jesus to this very, very dark and broken world that we live in. The world needs Christ, amen. Let us be Christ to them. We are his body. As we take this bread and think of his body, we're his body. So let's live like Christ. Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for your great compassion. The Lord, you are the good Samaritan. That you came, you rescued us, You bandaged us. You healed us. You brought us into your church. You've given us people that care for us. Oh Lord, you've been so good to us. 
And we deserve none of it. We freely acknowledge we deserve none of it. We freely acknowledge we don't deserve any of it. That it's all of your grace and we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people that um, not only revel in your mercy and love, but, Lord, that we would be people that are filled with it, that we would walk it, that we would live it to the broken people around us. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you that you loved us first. We pray in your name. Amen.